Today, we are going to talk about the matter of taking the Bible seriously, uh, but not always taking the Bible literally. That's what we're going to be working on. So today, as we, we do this, as we jump into this, I'm going to start with a bit of audience participation. And since we're having a family service, that is all the kids are in here and they are trapped here, uh, and you parents are ex- so excited about it, um, I'm going to ask for a couple of kids to be uh, the participants in my plan here. So I will need two kids, two kids, stop. I will need two kids. I will most likely overlook my own kids because that looks like it's playing favorites, and I will not choose Mark Ryan Jr. Um, but anyway, so I'm looking for two kids, and your, your goal here, your job here is to draw, okay? So if you'd like to draw, I'm looking for you, and I want you to, uh, I want you to listen to the scriptures that I share the scriptures that I put on the screen and I read out to you. And your job today is to draw what you hear. You've got to draw what you hear, okay? So if you feel, and then you're going to have to talk afterwards, okay? So you're going to have to explain what it is that you hear afterwards. So uh, who wants to join me? I need two kids for this. Like nobody's, no, Lance, I'm not doing it. Come on, sir. Come on, man. Do we have anybody else? Come on up here. I'll just take more. One more. One more. We're going to do four total. Yes. Come on, man. Okay. So here's the first thing. I want you to say what your name is and say hi to everybody. Theo. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I love it. Judah. Hi. Naya. Hi. Abby. Hi. Awesome. Okay, guys, come on over here. Come on over here. We're going to start with Theo and Judah. You guys are going to draw something, then we'll rip it off, and we'll let the other two take it. There is your marker, okay? Can you reach everything? So here's what I want you to draw. I don't need this microphone. I don't even know why I'm talking into it. The first scripture is 1 Samuel 2.8. Now remember, guys, what I want you to do is I want you to draw exactly what you hear, Okay? For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them, on the pillars, he has set the world. So what would you draw in that? Can you draw the world for me, Theo? Can you draw the world for me? Pull that marker off. Make sure you put it all over your clothes for your mama. (laughs) Okay, so draw, draw, draw a big world, guys. Draw me a big world. There you go. Now, what would it look like for that world to be set on pillars? What's a pillar? (laughs) Michael? Michael? He probably can make cupcakes, but you can't tell me what a pillar is? Okay. So a pillar is something that holds something up. So think of a column that holds something up. A post. Do you know what a post is? There you go. There you go. Draw me a post holding up that world. Okay, very good. Next scripture. Next scripture. And this is the really important thing that you're going to read right off the top or hear right off the top. In the heavens, he has set a tent. You guys know what a tent is, right? In the heavens. Where are the heavens? You got a new tent. Good. Where are the heavens? Is it above the earth? 
He said, a tent for the sun. So draw, draw what you hear. A tent? Draw a tent. What does a tent look like? That looks perfect. I love it. And then what is in the tent, according to that? I love your tent. The sun. Now draw me a picture of the sun. Inside that tent. Okay, outside that tent's fine. Very good. See, you know what? These fine young ladies got to see the guinea pigs first, and then they're like, we got this. You guys are, you guys are, okay. So here, here we go. I want to show something. I want you to pick this up and show everybody what you've drawn. This is a kid's depiction of what the Bible says. Show that to them, Theo. Show it to everybody, guys. Show it to everybody. Show it to everybody. Show it to everybody. Okay, guys. There is a depiction. Now what I want you to do is rip your paper off and hold it, and you stand over there and hold yours. Okay? There's yours. Hold it. Here is yours, sir. And I want you to hold that over there. Okay, jump over here, Naya. The pen is still in Theo's hand because he's still planning to mark his clothes up. It'll be awesome. Okay, guys, let's go back to the previous scripture. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Go for it. Draw what you hear. I love this girl, Miss Abby. She doesn't have to copy, but she sure knows what pillars are, Michael Thompson. You got pillars that set up your front porch. Yes, it's good. Okay, there we go. We've got the earth, and we've got it on pillars. The next piece, in the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chambers. And like a strong man, it runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Man, that's, a, that's an elaborate tent. I like both of yours. Keep it going. Theo's looking at it like, I could have done better. Can I get another try? I could have done this. Very good, ladies. They got to color in the spikes of the sun, you know. Okay, guys, now I want you to hold that up. Close those pins up. Hand them to me. Okay, Hold those up and show them what you see when you think of the Scripture. Okay. Are those cool? Okay, guys. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to set this one here. I want you to set this one here. Gentlemen, I need your drawings. This one and this one. And fortunate for us, these are also sticky. So we've got this. Okay, you guys can all have a seat. Give them a hand, guys. Okay, this is what a kid hears when they read the scripture and they draw out what they hear literally. It's pretty amazing, isn't it, right? You have, no, I don't need your help. Anyway, so, so we've got all of that, right? We've got all of those pictures, okay? Now I want to show you an ancient Hebrew rendering of what they saw the heavens and the earth to look like. This is very interesting. I hope you can see this. 
Now, there's a couple things that I want you to take note of inside of this. The first thing is that the ancient Israelites divided the world into four parts. They divided the, the world into the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the underworld. This is what they saw when they read the scripture, right? They saw the heavens, and anybody who knows their Bibles knows that there is talk of three heavens in the Bible. There is the heavens referred to as the sky, there is the heavens that are above the sky, and then there is the third heaven, which is the throne of God, okay? And so they viewed it in four parts, the heavens, the earth, the sea, around here, right, and then the underworld. The second thing that they did is that they viewed the sky as a vault resting on foundations. This is how they depicted it in ancient drawings or ancient, ancient graphs, so, right? So they have this vault in the, uh, in the sky, and it rests on foundations, and that could have been mountains, it could have been pillars, it could have been something. With doors and windows, it's fascinating, they read the scriptures, and they heard that doors and windows were the way in which rain would come in to this whole situation, right? So God dwelt above that, right? And he dwelt above this in both cloud and majesty. There's a vivid picture for you. God dwells in majesty. The third thing that you need to know is that the world was viewed as a disc that was floating on top of, uh, on top of the waters. It was secured or it was moored by pillars. Something was holding this down, okay? And the earth was the only known domain, and everything else was just simply unknowable. The fourth thing that an ancient mind heard when they read scripture and the world that they drew and depicted was that the underworld, or Sheol, as we hear in the Bible, was actually a watery or a dusty prison, depends on which uh, passage you're referring to, a watery or a dusty prison from which nobody returned. They viewed uh, death the same way we did. Dead people stay dead. Now, it's really important, that is on their own power. It tells us in Hebrews that Abraham thought that God could raise Isaac from the dead, so there is clearly an Old Testament view of resurrection, but it was firmly within the power of God to do so, right? Okay, And they regarded the, this as a physical place right underneath the earth. So hell, Sheol, the underworld, whatever. There's all kinds of con conflated terms here, but it was a literal place under the world. Okay, so with both the kids' view, there's the kids' view of the Scripture as they hear it, and the ancient view of Scripture, we have, we have arrived at a very important concept. This is the next thing that you need to understand when you're reading your Bible, and that is this. It's on the screen. Although we should take the Bible seriously, we shouldn't always take the Bible literally. Although we should take the Bible seriously, we I would even say we're never meant to always take the Bible literally. Now, this seems pretty simple, right? Right? I mean, are these renderings accurate? Of the world you know, are they accurate? Not even close to accurate, are they? But does that mean the Bible is not trustworthy? Not at all. Doesn't, doesn't mean that at all. Are, are the words that we read in the Bible supposed to create accurate renderings at all times? No. They're not supposed to create accurate renderings. If they are, uh, if they were to create rack, uh, accurate renderings or if they were intended to, what problem would we have with the Bible? It would be untrue. That's what the Bible says about the earth. 
That's what the Bible says about the earth. It says that God has put, on, uh, put under the earth pillars holding it in place. He says that there's a tent in the sky, whatever that even means. And the sun comes out of that tent like a bridegroom busting forth. What we're seeing is imagery. Now, if they were not supposed to take the Bible uh, in this way, in this literal fashion, does it affect the Bible's trust, uh, truthfulness? And the answer is absolutely not. And I want to explain that to you today. The answer to the first question is clearly no. Neither rendering uh, of these things is accurate. But why? Not because we found a better or a fuller Bible interpretation. I hope you guys know this. This is not accurate, and we know it's not accurate, not because we found a Bible passage that says this isn't accurate, right? We know this because we've zoomed out from the world, and in doing so, we've actually discovered the more realistic, dare I say, the actual literal rendering of the cosmos, now, this is something that I find fascinating, especially when it comes to uh, the intersection of science and faith, uh, specifically within the mind of Christians. How many of you know that the Bible says this? The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. How many of you know that that says that? How many of you have quoted it? You've probably heard it. The heavens declare the glory of God. You've said this. And most of the time what we mean is that we look up into the sky and we go, wow, it's majestic and therefore an artist and therefore God. But that's not the only way to understand that, right? The truth is the heavens are telling of the glory of God. The Bible itself tells us that the heavens, not only the Bible, not merely the Bible, are actually telling a story. And what story is that? The story of God's handiwork. So often Christians panic when trying to unite science and faith. And the reason for the panic is that Christians, as Christians, we become far too devoted to a particular reading of the text of Scripture. Far too attached to an interpretation of the Bible. So much so that even when evidence to the contrary arises, we won't hear it. We won't hear a word of it. And you guys are looking at this saying, this is just far too simple, Nathan. It's not that big of a deal. I'm going to show you that it's not that simple. I'm going to show you that it is not so benign. It becomes serious to the point of, uh, of Christians or people of faith dividing over these ideas. Viewing the scriptures as literal in all cases has made followers of God and, and other followers of God enemies of one another. A people that are supposed to be known because they love one another. And we're actually fighting each other because we go, I'm sorry, but this is not accurate. It's more like this. <laughs> like, are you serious? Are you serious? So we disagree with people, and then what do we do? We label them heretics. We label them false teachers. We label them uh, horrible non-Christians or something like this which has allowed the skeptical world a foothold, and they cry foul any time that they see Christians interact with each other because we're just mean, right? Or because they actually don't see the Bible's importance or value or truthfulness in our life because we're sitting here nitpicking each other and we don't even have the full picture ourselves. We'll see an example of this division in just a second. What we need to do, church, is to adopt a hermeneutic, which is an interpretive method again, to allow all the different types of language within the scripture to speak to us in a way that they're intended to speak. 
This, of course, will require adjustment on all our parts with respect to what we read. Over the past couple of weeks, we've already, if, if you have never been a student of the studies of inspiration and inerrancy and authority of the Scripture, if you haven't been a student of that, you have no doubt begun to adjust your viewpoint. Why? Because you now know how we came to have our Bible or how we came up with this Scripture. We also have a fuller picture of what inspiration truly means. And now we understand what is authoritative and what is not and why all of these things matter. Okay, So what has happened? You've simply adjusted your viewpoint. There's a well-known uh, Christian theologian, well-known theologian that is uh, no longer a Christian. He is deconverted, or he is whatever they call this, right? Uh, he he deconverts, and he has walked away. But he is a very astute person. You don't just get to throw these people out and say, ha, loser. His name is Bart Ehrman, right? And Bart Ehrman has deconstructed his faith. But he did not deconstruct his faith because of textual criticism and variations within the faith. He didn't do that. He is a textual critic himself. He's a very, very astute individual. He has looked at all these things. He was able to adjust his views of inspiration and inerrancy and authority very easily because he studied the scripture. Bart Ehrman's deconversion has a lot to do, if not primarily to do uh, with or solely to do with the problem of evil and suffering in the world uh, when you juxtapose that with a holy and loving and good God. He struggles with those things. But the truth is that we can adjust our ideas when we start to have a fuller picture of what God's word says. Think about this with me. We're going we're gonna to put a couple of scriptures on the screen. When we read texts like 1 Chronicles 16.30, Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. You know how easy it is for you to say, of course, that doesn't literally mean the world never moves. We know it spins and rotates and all this. At one point, we didn't know that. And at one point, Bible interpreters and theologians thought that the world was fixed, never moved. Please understand this. Or Psalm 104 verse 5, God set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. Now the earth has foundations. But guess what we do um, um, automatically because we've been trained in our world, scientific world that we live in. We automatically put the world as a globe. They didn't view it that way. They viewed earth as literally the land masses and they were sitting on a foundation somehow. Were they right in their understanding? In a way. But are they right according to what we now see because of traveling to the moon and looking back? Absolutely not. They were dead wrong. And what were they using to prove their point? The Bible, right? What do we do with uh, passages like Ecclesiastes 1.5? The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. There's not a true statement in that verse. Literally. The sun doesn't rise, the sun doesn't go down, and it doesn't hasten anywhere. Do you understand that? But if you take the Bible literally in every situation, you're going to have some problems. Psalm 75, 3, the earth and all who dwell in it melt. Uh-oh, that's not going to be fun. 
I guess we're some sort of wax or something. Anyway, okay, let's move past it. It says, it is I, God, who have firmly set its pillars. Selah. Interesting idea. What pillars are we looking at? We've gone to the moon. We've looked back. Nobody can find the pillars. Where are they? I guess God's lying. Not even close. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. First of all, there's tons of figurative language there. And it's an amazing story that God brings. God makes something out of nothing. Right? It's an amazing idea. But then this last piece. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he set the world on them. And what we have is a literal rendering. The earth and its pillars, the earth and its pillars, the earth and its pillars. So if we hold to that position, we are going to get uh, into a lot of problem and a lot of trouble with the skeptics in our world. If we don't adjust our position, we are a people who believe in fairy tales and weird nonsense. But if we do adjust our position, we are not being unfaithful to the text. We're being faithful to the meaning, to the truth, to the ideas, to the understanding. And we're actually allowing the scripture to speak in the creative fashion in which it was written at times. When we read texts like these, we have to allow them to communicate what it is that God meant to communicate. And in the moments where we discover that we may be off in our understanding, what do we do again, church? We adjust. With our second question from earlier, are the words that we read supposed to create accurate renderings? Are the words we read supposed to create accurate renderings? If we take into account our experience of language, the answer to the question is obvious. No. Right? We use common sense. We start by taking a natural or a literal reading of a text. And if that doesn't make sense, what we do is we go to the next level. This involves what we call metaphor, right? Or figures of speech. For example, Jesus' statement in John 10.9. You know what Jesus says in John 10.9? He says, I am the door. Good luck with that one. Right? What did Jesus literally say? He said, I am the door. Does Jesus literally mean he's an object made of wood, fiberglass, or steel? No, he doesn't mean that at all. But he does mean something very literal, very real. What is that? There is one way through which you get to the Father, and that is Jesus. Amen? I am the door. What about in John 15, 5? Jesus says, I am the vine. That's weird. He doesn't even stop there. He says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. I'm too fat to be a branch. I'm sorry, it just don't, doesn't work this way. And I'm supposed to produce fruit. That's just weird, okay? Are there grapes hanging off any of you guys? Apples, oranges? <laughs> what was this? <laughs> Dangling fruit, I love this, right? I am the vine. What does Jesus mean? I am the source from which life comes. Or what about... What about John 6, 48? I am the bread of life. Do we take that literally? No, we don't. But we know what he means, right? 
We understand what he means because it's metaphor. I love what C.S. Lewis has to say with regard to metaphor and writing. Here's what he says in his book, Miracles. This is a lengthy quote, but please listen to what he says. When a man says that he grasps an argument, he is using a verb, grasp, which literally means to take something in his hands. But he is certainly not thinking that his mind has hands or that an argument can be seized like a gun. But he's grasped it. To avoid the word grasp, he may change the form of the expression and say, I see your point. How many of you use that one? I see your point. But he does not mean that a pointed object has appeared in his visual field. I see your point. There it is, right? He doesn't mean that. He may have a third shot and say, I follow you. Most of you guys will say this. Oh, I'm following. I'm following. I follow you, right? I follow you. But he does not mean that he is walking behind you along the road. So C.S. Lewis concludes with this. Everyone is familiar with this linguistic phenomenon, and the grammarians call it metaphor. But it is a serious mistake to think that metaphor is an optional thing which poets or orators may put in their work as a decoration, or that plain speakers can do without it. The truth is that if we are going to talk at all about things which are not perceived by the senses, we are forced to use language metaphorically. The Bible does this constantly. Each of us uses metaphor in everyday conversation. Life would actually be quite boring if you didn't. Okay? It would be very boring if you didn't. Um, God has done the same thing, though, church. And so it would be a pity for us, this is, this is a challenge, I think, when we're reading the Bible. It would be a pity for us in our desire to deal with the Bible as more than just a book. How many of you know that it's more than just a book? It's inspired, it's inerrant, it's authoritative. There's something unique about this. There's something about this truth that, that actually lies at the foundation of all truth. It's a fascinating thing, right? The Bible is more than a book, but it'd be a pity that, uh, that we ended up treating it as less than a book, because it is also a book, right? But to treat it less than a book by not allowing it the range of uh, the use of language or order or figures of speech that are common in conversation and reading. So what we do is we say, well, the Bible is inspired, the Bible is inerrant, the Bible is authoritative, therefore it can have no opportunity for creativity. It just needs to be as boring as a, as a you know, a manual for putting together furniture. That would suck, right? We don't want that. We've got something far greater than this. This may not seem like a big deal to you, and you may be sitting there thinking, Nathan, this is common sense. Who in the world has a problem with this? My answer is twofold. Number one, common sense isn't so common, and number two, you have a problem with this at times. I guarantee you, you have a problem with this at times. Earlier, I mentioned this issue causing division among Christians. So here's the best example that I can, uh, I can think of from history. There are instances where the answer doesn't seem to be obvious in the text. This is one of those situations. It doesn't seem to be obvious. At least it wasn't for thousands of years. In the sense that all believers in all ages who are fully convinced of the authority of Scripture all conclude that it, it's the same. No, what happens is they all come to different interpretations. So what should we do with those situations? Well, that was the pressing issue in the time of Galileo. How many of you know this? 
This was the pressing issue in the time of Galileo. So let's apply what we've learned to the moving earth controversy. That was what was going on. Galileo didn't believe that the earth was fixed and that, uh, that everything moved around it. He changed that plan. He was actually not the originator of this idea, right? So what have we learned about the moving earth controversy? So that we can see how Christians eventually came to accept uh, the new interpretation of a literal understanding of the foundations or the pillars of the earth. Here's a little excerpt from history.com. The church had decided that the idea that the sun moved around the earth was an absolute fact of Scripture from the Bible. Why? Because the earth is set on pillars and it doesn't move. And the sun rises and the sun sets and it hastens to its place, right? So they believed from Scripture it was an absolute fact that could not be disputed, despite the fact that scientists had come to know for centuries that the earth was not the center of the universe. Galileo agreed... Because of the pressure that he was under, he actually agreed not to teach what was labeled as heresy. What was heresy? You guys are like, come on, Nathan. This is just like, that's just a, that's a bygone era. We do this same nonsense today, right? It was considered heresy, and Galileo agreed not to teach it, and he spent the rest of his life after espousing this idea under house arrest. <laughs> that's so fun, Right? It took more than 300 years after he's dead for the church to admit that Galileo was actually right and they cleared his name of heresy. Do you guys realize how crazy that man must have felt? He's sitting here saying, based on science and based on my own eyes, I think it's this way. And every pastor and every teacher everywhere was going, you're wrong, the Bible's right, sit down and shut up. How many of you have ever felt like that argument has hit you? It's hit me many times. This argument is going right now and it continues to go with regard to creation. Now, what is the end result? What is the final verdict? God if I know, right? But what I do know is that it is a fascinating thing for us to take a pause and realize that the Bible is written differently than maybe we've thought. It is not always literal, okay? So we've got to be careful. As you can see, this did not happen overnight. 300 years, many years, centuries, right? One can imagine that, uh, that there are being two major polarized positions, right? That's the fixed earthers and the moving earthers, okay? Like the flat earthers of today for some weird, obscure reason, right? With the latter group, the moving earthers, growing in number every day. These positions were held not only by people for whom the scripture had little to no authority, that was the rest of the world, although there must have been some, but by those who were convinced that the Bible was the inspired word of God and who regarded it as the full and final authority. The latter would agree on the core elements of the gospel, the doctrines of creation, the fall, salvation, incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection, but they disagreed on what scripture taught about the motion of the earth. They just disagreed. This immediately raises several questions for us. Were these differences driven simply by a desire on the part of the moving earthers, right, to fit in with the advances of science? You're just compromising. You're just compromising. Was that what was happening? No, they were the ones that were right. 
They saw it for what it is. And they were right. They weren't compromising. This is one of those typical uh, gaslighting tactics that Christians like to use on each other. Where we, where we say, you just don't believe the Bible. And we, de- we demean somebody and we put them down so drastically that they basically feel like they're crazy at the end. Right? So the moving earth faction uh, wasn't doing this to fit into the advances of science. Or, or were they the result of bullheaded anti-scientific attitudes on the part of the fixed earth factions? No. I don't think it was anti-scientific. I just think it was people who believed what they believed, right? Did moving earthers necessarily compromise the integrity and the authority of Scripture? Did Galileo, Galileo compromise the authority of Scripture? No. He proved it to be true on a very, very different level. The Galileo incident teaches us that we should be humble enough to distinguish, we have to distinguish between what the Bible says and our interpretations of it. The biblical text just might be more sophisticated than we first imagined, and we therefore might be in danger of using it to support ideas that it never intended to communicate, right? The Bible could be understood to say that the earth is literally fixed in space. We just saw it. And the kids are not crazy. They did it right. But it does not have to be understood that way. Galileo taught in his day that the history, and history has subsequently agreed with him, that the Bible has a bigger understanding, a bigger meaning. Because what? The heavens declare the glory of God, not just the Bible. And so we need to be a people that are okay with what happens here. Let me share with you two types of understanding that I think we need to do when we're interpreting the Bible. I think it helps if we place interpretation in two categories. One, literary understanding. And two, interpretation as significance and application. Interpretation as its significance and its application. What is meant by this? What is to take away from this? First, when you read something like, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. You understand that the text is telling you that Jesus entered a Galilean village. Well, if you know anything about the region, you know this. And that village was called Capernaum. And while in the vicinity of this place, a centurion came and asked Jesus for his assistance. Matthew 8, 5. But you didn't get all of that detail from the text, right? In your head, what happens is you unconsciously analyze, you describe, you paraphrase, and you put all this stuff together with the biblical text. And it all begins to make sense, right? We do this with everything, guys. Second, beyond literary comprehension, there is also a type of understanding that has to do with significance. That is to say, thinking through a text's implications and the various ways that it can resonate with you. Here, understanding goes beyond grasping basic information. It's a kind of association that all of us make. And we, again, we do this every time we're reading the Bible. Consciously or not, we're making associations. We're making it between the biblical text and other things that we already have in our brains. Uh, before, I said, draw me the earth. And everybody, everybody up here, every kid up here, drew a circle. Because in their mind, they mix the earth with the globe they know it to be. That's what happens. We just put all of these things together, right? So we're asking, what does this verse, this passage, this chapter, or even this book remind me of? What does it make me think about? What does it relate to? Meaning, therefore, is a network of connections that we make between a text and other texts and then experiences in the world. 
It's a, it's a connection that we make between metaphor and reality, and we always put these things together. The meaning of a text is really just all of that related information put together in your brain. Okay? That's what a meaning is. Uh, this, is this is true about words and definitions. Have you, ever, have you ever said a word so many times it just doesn't seem to make sense anymore? Right? What, what movie was that? There was a comedy. It was like Tommy Boy or something that did that too. Right? Row ads or something. Right? Like the point is you can say something so many times it has no meaning. The definition of words are what we put together in our head. And that becomes a meaning. Okay? So when we say pants, we have a view of that. When we say a shirt, we have a view of that. But did you know in other cultures when they say shirt or pants, they may have a very different view of what that is. They put together all this stuff in their head, and they have a meaning behind it. We do it with words. We do it with interpretation of the Bible. Now, all this sounds pretty subjective, right? Okay, so where does meaning reside? Does meaning reside in the author? Does it reside in the text? Or does it reside in the reader's understanding? Yes. The answer is yes, right? The answer is yes. Interpretation is about a combination of all of these. Now, this, this will get a little bit technical, but I enjoyed this quote. Anthony C. Thistleton wrote a work called New Testament Hermeneutics and Philosophical Description. And here's what he says. We take into account the intention of authors, the dynamics within a text, and the understanding of readers, and what we call meaning occurs in the fusion of all three. Ultimately, meaning is the web of connections we make with the world behind the text, the author's horizon, the world inside the text, the literary horizon, and the world we inhabit in front of the text, the reader's horizon. The more connections we make, and the thicker those connections appear to be, the more preferable a particular meaning ascribed to the text becomes, because it explains more of the features that surround our reading experience. So let's take the text we've been talking about. So God has fixed the earth on its foundations. And then we have scientific understanding that there are no pillars floating around in sky, right? We actually know that there's this thing called gravity, and it's pulling this uh, globe that we're on around the sun, and everything is moving in this beautiful ballet in the sky, okay? We, we have this picture. It's a beautiful picture. But we have the text of Scripture that says the earth is on a pillar, and there's a tent in the sky, and the sun peeks out. Okay? And what we do is we take what we see, what we experience, we take what the writer wrote, and we understand the context of what he's trying to communicate, and we put all that stuff together, and here's what we come to understand. The earth is firmly in God's hands through whatever mechanism he has chosen to keep it there, and it's not budging. It's spinning. It's rotating around the earth or rotating around the sun, it's doing all this majestic stuff, and yet God has it firmly where he wants it. And the Bible is still telling us the truth. And then from the author's vantage point, it's the same vantage point as us, it sure does look like the sun keeps rising every day. And it sure looks like the sun keeps ducking behind the, behind the hills, or the weeds as it is in Ohio, right? right? So, so we see this every day. What we're doing is we're putting all of these horizons together and we're making sense of the Bible. So people do this with creation a lot. People argue, what is the true creation account? Is it, is it young earth? Is it old earth? Is it, is it uh, theistic evolution? Is it, is it something like this, right? And we've got a lot of debates going on. 
And what I suggest to people who want to get into this fight is, listen, you, you look at all the horizons that you have, the, authors in, the author, the intent, and your view of things. You put those together and you find the thing that best makes sense out of all of it. And you don't kill any of one over it, right? But you make sense of it and you hold to that idea. You hold to that understanding. My, ter- my particular view is this. It does appear that the earth is a lot older than we think. But that doesn't mean that young earth creationists are wrong. And I am definitely with other scholars that say, if there's evidence to prove that, I'll walk right alongside you. I will believe that full on, right? What I can't come to a conclusion of is this notion of theistic evolution, that God created a process and that process finally popped out humanity over time and and now we have uh, the people that we are. The reason that I can't back that is because contrary to uh, popular media and information out there, there is still no evidence no matter how much they say there is evidence for these things, there is no evidence of species-to-species transitions, okay? That's number one for me and my rendering of all these horizons. And number two, I have a theological problem with with the perspective that is given. And it's not what you think it is. It's not that the Bible says God created Adam and, er, Adam and Eve out of the dust of the ground or out of his rib and breathed into them the breath of life. I believe that too. I have no problem with this. The actual problem I have theologically is the imago Dei. See, if humans are created with the image of God and evolution is true, there has to be a point at which the image was transferred onto human beings. And nobody can define it. Nobody knows when. We don't even know if we've transitioned fully in this worldview. And I'm not picking on it. I'm just simply telling you what my mind thinks, right? And so we we don't even know where we're at. If we're still in process, please hear me, church. If we're still in process, we don't have the Imago Dei. That was given to humans. That was given to a species, a human species, right? But what am I doing with all of this? I'm taking all of the horizons that I have, And I'm looking at the text of Scripture, I'm thinking about the author, I'm thinking about the context and the communication, what's trying to be pointed to, and I'm looking at the world that I live in, and I put it all together and I go, this makes the best sense to me. And the last thing I'm going to do is burn you at the stake for a different view. Right? Doesn't mean I'm not going to try to convince you of my view, or at least talk to you about it. But we have to be careful, guys. We have to be careful when we're having these conversations because here's my fear. What happens if one day, one day, Galileo shows up and he proves something and we're all like, the Bible tells me so and we label him a heretic and we trash his name for 300 years and it turns out he was the one who was right. What do we do in that situation? We ought to be careful. We ought to be careful about this. We need to give good study to Scripture. We need to give all of our attention to it. But it takes a lot to do this. There's not one person in this room that takes the Bible literally all the time. And I'm grateful for that because we'd have all kinds of problems. As my former pastor would say, uh, with the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, we'd have a lot of blind, toothless people in this world if we took it all literally, right? 
I'm really glad when Jesus says, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Because the truth is, we would all have no limbs. Right? I'm glad we don't take things literally. I'm glad we, not all things literally. I'm glad we look to see the understanding. And so, what do we use to get to that proper understanding? The horizons I talked about. But we also look at context, which I've talked about a thousand times. We look at the content of the scripture. These are, again, merging with those horizons. We look at the main concern of the author. What is the author trying to say? Is Genesis trying to give us a science book? Answer's no. The answer's no. It wasn't trying to give us a science book. It doesn't mean we can't learn things from it. I'm just telling you it wasn't a science book. Okay? And so it's a beautiful thing. We've got to look at the main concern of the text, and then we should look at its application after we've figured all that stuff out. Okay? We should wait for the application. So in conclusion, the point of all this is that we must interpret the Bible knowing that there are numerous ideas communicated using metaphor, figures of speech, all kinds of, all kinds of issues here, all kinds of literary devices. And even if we discover in this beautiful style of writing that the Bible doesn't communicate something literally, it still remains true. It still remains true. It still remains an anchor on which we can, we can uh, hook our boat and stand firm all the days of our life. Trust me, trust me, trust me, church. The issue that you face in the skeptical world that we live in is not how to merge science with the Bible. The issue you face in the world is you getting past your head and understanding the Bible the way it was intended. This is the problem. It always has been, right? No comment, Mark. Anyway, right? This is the problem, and we've got to work towards it, okay? The Bible may not be literal, but it remains true. Next week, what we're going to do, guys, is we're going to talk about the very purpose of Scripture. And this is where this whole series turns practical. This is where this series starts to hit us home, right? And it, it begins to show us why we should pick this book up each and every day. Why we should meditate, it in the morning, meditate on it in the morning and in the evening or on the road as we come and as we go. This is really important. So next week, again, what is the purpose of the Scripture?